Good morning. Welcome to Allie and Pacero with our friend James Ball. I'm Alan Allie with our friend James Ball. <laughs> Hi, James. Hi, Alan. <laughs> you had a busy day yesterday. Uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover today, everything from the Oregon Republican Party to um, some new things that are going on in schools and how they're positioning certain things for our children in the public schools. Uh, also want to talk about COVID, have lots of updates on that as well. But let's start in with the Oregon Republican Party. We elected a new chairman we yesterday. And, and James was, was an intimate part of that process. <laughs> this is, uh, for those of you that don't, that don't know how political parties work, at least they're all similar, but ours is there's uh, representatives from every county that meet. It's based, the number of representatives is based on the Republican population in each of those counties, um, not the total population of the county. So there were 150-ish people yesterday that got together. And every other year, they vote to select uh, chairman, vice chairman, secretary, treasurer, and kind of reform the party. And then in the other years, you're doing things like uh, picking your electors, picking the people to go to your national convention, that sort of thing. So yesterday was that meeting. Uh, James was intimately involved because James was attempting to run. I don't yeah. know if you technically ran. Uh, I don't think. For chairman. I, think I did. Yeah. So <laughs> this was, um, so yeah, it was complicated the way this all worked out. So there's a rule in the ORP bylaws that in order to run for any leadership position, you have to announce your attention in writing to the secretary 45 days before the election. And I had talked about, I've been talking about this for yeah. years. Um, I, Ellen and I have talked about mm -hmm. this a lot of, of, party chairman of something that, that I would be interested in in the future. Uh, decided that like in December that it probably wasn't the right thing to do now. And then the 45 day, the 45 day window was actually um, January 5th was the deadline. And so if y'all are not interested, uh, have been living under a rock for the last uh, couple oh, that's of weeks, right. January 6th was the insurrection at the, at the Capitol. And then January 19th, the ORP put out a statement basically calling it a false flag attack and putting some pretty inflammatory stuff that got us in the national news uh, for all the wrong reasons. John Oliver on last week tonight uh, mentioned the Oregon Republican Party is in the New York Times. Um, not a good look for the party. So um, that was kind of the, the straw that broke the camel's back where I was like, well, I, I feel like I need to do something. I, I should get in there and, and try to make some changes. 45 days had already passed. So the only way I could get my name on the ballot would be to change the rules day of. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a speech and started calling people and got all my decks in a row. And we had a motion and two people lined up to give seconds. And then of course there would be yeah. a debate about whether or not they wanted to change the rules. I had you know, a couple dozen people lined up that they were going to support that, but people didn't really want to stick their neck out and be the, the first or the second. So um, anyway, day of one of my seconds backs out because they're afraid that I would split the vote. And then the, the actual motion gets made. And the guy who I had, the other guy I had set to, to make a second just didn't do it. He, oh, he got geez. confused or uh, thought he thought something else was going on. And so the motion failed for lack of a second. Wow. 
Um, so we didn't even get to debate whether or not to um, get the rules changed to allow me to be nominated from the floor. You so, know, the, the interesting thing, so I was chairman of the party and I never appreciated the rules of order, the, the, the rules of the party, the rules of the body, how all of that works, motions made, motions seconded. As, a, as an outsider, we use Robert's rules of orders in mm -hmm. board meetings, but it's very loosely done, incredibly loosely done, unless there's a real controversy and then you have attorneys in the meeting and the attorneys are sort of walking you through the process very carefully and very controlled, uh, following all the rules, making sure it's done. But at the national level and at the state level, not as much at the county level, but the rules of order, the, and you see it in the House and the Senate of the United States. You see it at the, at the Oregon House and denying quorums yeah. and everything. I never thought it, I, I always thought it was just stupid, right? <laughs> but Well, I think it's a good way to, because there's very strict rules. I mean, yeah. I bought a Robert's Rules book to, to go yeah. through all this, and it's, oh, it's you like, know, 700 yeah. pages long. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, of, of rules of how do you run how you run meetings and i think you're right it, i think it prevents controversies in a certain sense it um in the sense that uh it's um there's a very specific way to do right. things and you have to follow those rules and if somebody comes in and tries to take over the meeting you know you can sorry you're out of order because you're not following x y and z you know it it, it i could imagine especially in a case like this where i mean it, it gives it gives the ability to not have all those rules of conduct yeah. in the bylaws, yes. you know, they're me coming in. I mean, essentially it was me coming in and trying to steal the <laughs> meeting. <laughs> and, um, there is a, there's a proper procedure to do that. I can't just come in and say, Hey, I want to run for chair. You know, there's, there's, right. a, there's a process right. and I have to go through that process. Um, if I just, it, it, I think it, if essentially it, in one, in one way it, it takes away power from the chair. Yes. Because the, the chair can't just do whatever they want. They have to, you know, if, if again, I come in and try to steal the meeting, uh, they have to let me as long as I can go through the proper right. procedures. And that was, so. that was one of the things that I learned because my, my impression being an outsider was that the chair could basically do what they wanted because that's what it appears, you know, that when Mitch McConnell is the, is the, uh, leader of the Senate, it appeared that Mitch McConnell can do whatever he wants. Mm -hmm. That's not true. Yeah. Mitch McConnell um, knows the rules really well, and he can uh, pace the meeting. The one thing that the chair can do is you can say the meeting's in recess and stop everything, mm -hmm. confer with people, and then restart. So that's one thing that you can do. And you can, the other thing that the chair can do is they can recognize certain people. But somebody once told me that as the chairman of the meeting, the, you are supposed to allow the minority to have their positions uh, presented, but the majority rules. Mm -hmm. And as long as, as long as you're a chair and you keep thinking about that, that my responsibility is to allow the minority to be heard and then let the majority rule, uh, you were going to be okay. But it was, it's really good experience for anybody that's going to be in politics 
Um, I think it's very, very valuable. Get involved with your local parties. Uh, get involved with the state party. Um, it's it's going to be valuable if you're in the legislature. Yeah, so. I I mean I sat on I was the on the chairman of the board of my oh, yeah. condo association for a year, so had to go through all of the parliamentary procedures of Robert's rules and. Yeah, it, it is. I found it helpful. Like it's a pain in the neck when you first get started because it's all these rules that you're not familiar with. And, yeah. you know, if you run into somebody who's better at the right. rules than you are, you get you get rolled over pretty quick because right. you try to do something and they're like point of order. That's not correct. You know, you're out of line, whatever. Right. Um, but once you learn the rules, you can you you have a lot more control over the meeting. Yeah. And we've um, got to take a break. Uh, we'll be right back. This is Allie and Pacero with James Ball. Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash portland. Again, that's 503-558-6349 or proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Welcome back. It's Sunday morning with Allie and Pacero. Jim is still on sabbatical. <laughs> I've got James Ball here with me today. Uh, we're talking about the Oregon Republican Party Central Committee meeting. We went through the mechanics of it. Let's talk a little about the politics of what happened in, in the new chair and, and sort of who they're affiliated with. Bill Courier had been chairman for, I think six, six years. years, maybe something six, like yeah, that. Three terms. And yeah. uh, was kind of a, I'd say a steady hand. Uh, he rose up through the ranks of the party, uh, was involved in the party when I was chair. And then Art Robinson took over his chair. Now Senator Robinson took over his chair and then uh, Bill Courier took over for three years. He, he was involved in that uh, infamous now uh, statement about the events on January 6th. And Dallas was running, Dallas Heard is a senator, state senator from Roseburg. Um, he was running before, obviously before it, because he got his name in 45 days ahead of time. And there was a slate of state senators that were running. And it's really unusual in Oregon, at least. I can't remember a time when we had uh, state senators or state representatives so, so actually this, intimately involved in leading this the This came up a little bit. There were some elected officials who ran the party in the late 90s. I think actually Marilyn Shannon, um, who is the former yeah. uh, committee woman, uh, I believe she was vice chair at that point and also a, a state oh. senator. At least this is what people were talking about. Because um, that, that comment was made up before. Like, this has never happened before. Like, well, no, it did happen um, back in, I think it was from 95 to 97. Uh, Marilyn Shannon okay. and one other person were, were okay. state senators at the same time. So, but to your point, a lot of states actually have laws preventing oh. this. And one of my concerns with having senators lead the party is... Um, well, so first of all, like Bill made a good point yesterday. He says the, the party is supposed to see things from a partisan perspective. You're supposed to look at things from a Republican perspective, whereas a senator or a legislator has to look at things from their, uh, for the constituents. 
and not all of your constituents are going to be Republicans. So there are going to be points where the Republican Party disagrees with certain elected officials just by the nature of who you're, who you're representing. And so at what point do you, um, so what, when you're making a statement, who, do you, who are you representing? Are you representing the party or you're representing your, your constituents? My thought was, you know, the, the ORP as part of their bylaws is they're supposed to treat every primary campaign the same. Right. And one of the things that they allow is you can do mailers through the party and get yeah. a cheaper rate. So what happens if Dallas Heard gets primaried? Is he going to treat his primary opponent the same as he treats other primary Likely races? What if not? Yeah. What if, <laughs> what if Dallas Heard's opponent is trying to send attack ads through the party, through their mailers? Is he going to allow that? You know, he, he would, you would think that he would allow it for a different race. Would he allow it, allow it for someone running against him? I mean, I would hope so, but you're, you're relying on the goodwill of the senator and not on, right. again, this is where Robert's rules comes in, is you have a very distinct way of th- the things need to be done and you're not relying on people to do them. You're relying, you're relying on codified, um, it's, it's, it's a conflict of interest and there's nothing codified to prevent yeah. bad behavior. And I, I think, so it just, it's, it, I think it could that point, potentially be problematic. The yeah. first point that you made is really interesting and thoughtful. And uh, I, I think you attributed it to Courier. And it's absolutely right, is as an elected representative, I represent all of my constituents. So if you look at the senators that were elected, um, they are from really solid Republican seats. Mm-hmm. and their um, messaging it has consistently been very solidly Republican, hardcore, solidly Republican. They don't need a single Democratic vote to get elected. Right. Um, similar to the Democrats' position in Oregon. Mm-hmm. In Oregon, the Democrats need 90% of the Democrats they need to split the independents and non-affiliated. They don't have to win them, just split them. And they don't need a single Republican vote to get elected. So the, the messaging from the, the Democrats here in Oregon, they don't need to moderate their position to appeal to Republicans if they want to get elected statewide. Mm-hmm. All they have to do is lock down their constituents and split the independents and non-affiliated. So for, it's very different being the state senator from uh, Roseburg versus being the secretary of state. Yeah. And as the secretary of state, you have to win, if you're a Republican, 90% of the Republicans, 60% of non-affiliated independents, and 15% of the Democrats. That's a big lift. That's, that's an enormous lift. Yeah. So, and so who actually got yeah, elected? So Dallas, Heard, Dallas Heard State Senate. got elected. Um, yeah. uh, Herman Bartrigger, I, I can never pronounce his name yeah. right, um, was elected vice chair. So I believe he's and, actually Douglas County Commissioner right now, right? Um, oh, anyway. he's not a state. He, he was, he's a county commissioner now. He, he, yeah, he resigned as a senator to, to be a county commissioner. That's right. I believe. Um, yeah. And then uh, Becky Mitts actually stayed on as secretary. And 
the other senator yeah. whose name escapes me. Um, That's Lithicum. Lithicum was treasurer. Yeah. So three of the four senators okay. um, of the senator slate made it through. And then uh, Becky Mitts stayed on as uh, a as Yeah, that's because nobody wants the job. <laughs> <laughs> and she's really good at it. And she's like, really Becky good at is, it. Becky is really good at it. So, um, yeah, I, I'm actually really happy to see her staying on. Um, even though she wasn't on the senator's slate, yeah. But anyway, that that was my concern. Like I so I mentioned before, my concern that like it just you you don't want to be relying on people's goodwill in situations like this. You don't want to be relying on people to do the right thing. What you want is to have a codified, written um, bylaws or rules or something that says this is the way that you are supposed to act. And if you don't act that way, you know there can be there can be repercussions. Whereas now it's like we're relying on the goodwill of the senators to do the right thing. And I hope they do. Um, I think Dallas is going to work hard. Um, I think that he's got a lot of interesting yeah. ideas that I think are going to move the party forward. But um, you know, when, when there comes up this, this conflict comes up and it will come up, you know, we're relying on him to do the right thing. So hopefully he does. Yeah. I think it's going to be, it, it, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be different. Dallas is 36 years old, very passionate, mm -hmm. uh, very articulate about his positions. Um, I think he will, uh, it'll be a different, a, a, a different party um, as we move forward. And I think that's, you know, that's part of what, a reflection of what's happening in the United States as, as well. So mm -hmm. we've got to take a break. Uh, we'll come back for our next segment. This is Ali and Pacero with James Ball. The Portland spirit is headed to the river. Hop on board today for great views of the Portland skyline and historic Milwaukee waterfront. See our local landmarks and bridges from a unique vantage point on the river. Grab a cocktail on our outer deck while enjoying some of our delicious local cuisine. Fun for the whole family with options including lunch, brunch, dinner, and the famous Heart of Portland cruise. Tickets can be purchased at portlandspirit.com. Welcome back to Ali and Pacero with James Ball. Welcome to Sunday morning. We've emerged from the ice. Yeah. We had power out for like you five did. days. And there's yeah, still lots with of power out. Yep. Yep. Oregon City, southeast Portland is uh, is still hit pretty hard. Salem area is hit pretty hard. Still without power. Crazy. Yeah. You know, I didn't intend to talk about it, but it's very annoying to me that we have the power go out. We spend money on infrastructure and we never bury power lines. And mm -hmm. we have the technology to do it. We know where the power goes out. We have crews out trimming trees all the time, except it seems like they kind of go through and all they do is make it easier to see the power line. There's still branches <laughs> all around it. It's, it's, and uh, we, I was talking to a friend who was a city councilor. It turns out the city has the ability to pay for it. Mm -hmm. And as voters, it seems like, you know, potholes are the things that everybody keeps talking about. Fix the potholes, fix the potholes. Well, it's like bury the freaking power lines. <laughs> this is, this well, is, I, we, we just, I think it's just American cultures. We just have a very short term memory. And so when this happens, everybody's, oh, this is such a terrible thing. And then, you know, it, it clears up and it's, you know, a little cloudy out, well, but it's a nice day today. And uh, people just kind of, Ah, uh, well, forget about it. You know, it's going to cost too much money. And 
it'll never happen again. You know, my, my experience of working in the government was when people act irrationally, and I think this is irrational, you don't understand where the money is. You don't understand who's, who's pulling the strings. So when uh, there was a tsunami, there was millions of dollars spent on uh, mapping the tsunami zones. And we've done that twice now because the first mm -hmm. time wasn't good enough. And then we put up tsunami signs. And then on the coast, there are actual drop points for freshwater. And I don't know if they have any food, but I know they have freshwater drums um, for tsunamis. Yeah. Okay. Not a bad, sure. bad idea. Um, it employed a bunch of PhDs for quite a while. And my thing was, uh, guys, you know, this absolutely corresponds to altitude that, mm -hmm. you know, you get up above a certain altitude and you're going to be relatively safe. It's not that hard <laughs> to just kind of, kind of figure out where that is. And, and, and it doesn't have to be precise. You know, it doesn't have to be like there's a perfect right. line. Um, so I think that money, a lot of money was spent there that kind of puzzled me. But here, it's like, why, what is the structural thing that prevents people from bearing the power? What's the lobby? Is it the, is it the, um, the pole lobby, you know, the <laughs> telephone pole lobby? Is it because they're trees and we want to, I don't know. Right. Yeah. I, I would imagine it just costs money. Digging holes costs money and there's a lot of power lines. Um, you know, you have to dig up roads, you have to get, permits to get into people's yards and, and bury stuff. I mean, that, that would be my assumption that it, it just costs a lot of money up front. And then it's much cheaper to spend $2 million a year trimming trees than it is to spend $20 million one time to dig a ditch and Yeah, I bury think it. it's one of those uh, 80, 20 or 90, 10 rules though, that if you buried 10% or 20% of the power lines, you would accomplish 90% of what you need. You're probably right. And I, I, I mean, just about every problem that you look at is that way, right? Mm -hmm. And you just have to bury the power lines that are where the trees are, or <laughs> you know, like well, like a lot of things in government. Want, this just isn't that. Me to put hard. on my tinfoil hat. It's yeah. I think you pro it probably has a lot to do with government workers and the fact that there are government workers who jo whose job is to trim trees. And though you know, if you bury the power lines, you spend a whole bunch of money up front, but you you lose these ongoing you know, dues paying union jobs. Um, so, yeah. I mean, and that, that's, that's why the, the unemployment system never got fixed is because you have all these people maintaining this legacy old broken system. And if you fix the system, those people all lose their jobs. So, I mean, this is, you, you look at this from a union standpoint and unions own the Democrats. And if the union loses you know, if you, ha if you have a headcount reduction because things are no longer needed because the system got more efficient, um, the union loses money and they have no, no desire to lose money. I actually did uh, see that behavior, again, working in Salem was as a, as a person that runs a business, you look for efficiency all the time because mm -hmm. efficiency drives prices, prices makes you more competitive, you can lower your prices, you can be more competitive. So efficiency, 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 right? And 
you'd see in Salem where there were things that were obviously more efficient and we wouldn't do them. Uh I mean, like, obviously more efficient, obviously more cost effective. And then you realize, oh, they actually don't want to be efficient, right? There's a premeditated inefficiency built into things. And, and, you know, in some ways, I, I really got reflective about it because in some ways it's like, okay, I kind of get it, you know, that, that your job is employing, you think your job is to employ a lot of people. And not only are you employing a lot of people, but you're securing their financial uh, future for the rest of their lives yeah. because of the, the retirement um, benefits. And that's, that makes you feel like a wonderful thing. It's like taking a little wand and touching someone on the head and saying, you're financially secure forever. You're financially secure yep. forever. You're financially. And if I had that power in my company, that would be a wonderful thing. But you don't you in the private sector. Come in and you want to take these people's retirement away. You're the heartless guy who wants to destroy people's lives. Yeah. Rather than looking at the government serves the people, it's the government serves the government employees. So my thing always was, look, you get about 2% of the workforce retiring every year. So uh, 8% in a four-year term and 16% over uh, uh, eight years, two terms as governor. 16% reduction of the workforce would be pretty Mm -hmm. good. And... Uh, you don't really have to go in and fire a bunch of people. Just don't hire people and provide tools, computer tools and efficiency tools to take up the slack. Um, it isn't that hard. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it really isn't that hard. And but there's, but there's no desire. And like I said, this is, this is, I think where the unions have too much power is they, you know, every Every employee, every state employee pays $1,000 a year to the union. Yeah. And that money then goes to fund Democratic campaigns so that they can continue getting more money. I mean, it's just, it's this big cycle. So, I mean, why, why would you want a 16% reduction in workforce? I mean, that's 16% reduction in your revenue for the union. No, that's, that's absolutely true. I, uh, when our friend Mark Abrams was on, the way I said it is there's roughly 50,000 teachers in the state. And they each, um, their union dues are roughly $1,000 a person. Because he would say that, no, we don't spend that much on, on political lobbying. Mm-hmm. They say, okay, that's $50 million a year. Does it take $50 million a year to run your union? Yeah. That's insane. Right. Right? If it takes more than $2 million a year to run your union, that's insane. Because you know, there just isn't that much stuff to do. It isn't like you're building products and making things and you're, you're creating a framework to represent people. Right. So of course a massive amount of that money gets filtered back into the political system and $50 million a year just from the teachers is an enormous amount of money in the Oregon political system. And that's one of the messages that I tell my Democratic friends. It's like, look, you think your, your views on social issues or your views on the environment, or your views on you know, Native American, whatever it is you happen to be passionate about or what drives your party, it's like, no, 
There's no money behind that. All of the money is behind the public employee union agenda. We've got to take a break. We'll come back and talk about what we really wanted to talk about in that segment until I diverted it. Uh, This is Allie and Pacero with her friend James Ball. Welcome back to Allie and Pacero with our friend James Ball. Jimmy is still on sabbatical. I think we're going to get him back next week, though. He says he'll be back next week. So stay tuned. So those of you that uh, have listened to us, we talked a lot about GameStop a couple of weeks ago. I thought it was really interesting. James has... James and I have very different views about what was going on from two very different perspectives. And I think that was really useful. There was a congressional hearing this week where they had some of the people that were involved in GameStop uh, before Congress. And the chairman was Maxine Waters, who is a uh, African-American Democrat, female from New York, maybe? California, big state. And when I first started watching it, she does not seem to have the background to be the chairman of this committee. It's like finance and Wall Street or something, but she is the chair. And it wasn't until they got down, and I think they do the the questioning by seniority, Mm -hmm. but I watched it. I just had it on in the background. It was five hours long. I watched three or four hours of it. When it got down to the middle group where you got people with less seniority, there were some really impressive people and some really, really insightful, good questions asked. And I went from, oh my gosh, this is horrible that Congress is getting involved in this to Oh, if you listen to those folks, uh, both Republicans and Democrats, and the people that were interviewed was the the CEO of Citadel, who was the uh, clearinghouse for the trades for mm-hmm. Robinhood, the CEO of Robinhood, the the guy from from Reddit, uh, yeah, from Reddit, <laughs> the the CEO of Reddit, and then the oh, guy the from Reddit that that, that was uh, that was the instigator. Yeah. What's his name? Uh, his handle was deep effing value. Yeah, uh, deep effing I think his name value. Is Keith, Keith Gill is his yeah, actual name. Yeah, and um, and then somebody from the SEC, which was uh, it was an, an amazing panel. And when you got down into the middle of it, they had a great discussion about short positions. Oh, and the guy from the the hedge fund that lost all the money. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Mel- Mel- yeah Capital. Melvin yeah. Capital. And they, you know. It, there were a bunch of early Democrats and Republicans that were kind of grandstanding the older ones. And then when you got down into the younger ones, it was very thoughtful. The questions were very thoughtful, including a African-American black uh, Democrat from Florida, I think. And he asked some really thoughtful questions about his constituents about, I want my constituents to be able to invest. But I want them to have the level of disclosure that they need to be able to make good decisions. And he actually turned it around and asked the the people that were being interviewed, I have people that uh, are new to investing. What would you recommend that we do? Which was Mm -hmm. like, holy (laughs) (laughs) smokes. 
but the uh, the guy from the hedge fund was was one of the most interesting because they asked what regulations would stop this, and he said, "This isn't going to happen again. We're not going to take these positions. We're going to monitor the message boards. We have identified that there's a new dynamic in the market. This this driven by Reddit, driven by social media, small investors that can band together and uh, and move markets." And he said, "You know." We're not going to we're not going to do this again, yeah. basically. So I don't know if you had any I, uh, observations you know, I, on that. I, I wasn't able to watch any of the congressional testimony. I saw some of the comments online, but my thought from the very beginning of this was, I just want everyone to be <clears throat> to play by the same rules. You know, if the rules are you can short a position and you have to you have to pay it back at a certain point, um, the <laughs> Then just the hedge funds, I don't have a problem with hedge funds existing. I don't have a problem with hedge funds making money. I don't have a problem with them finding inefficiencies in the market and taking advantage of them. I just want retail to have those same opportunities. And if you're smarter than the hedge funds and you can find an inefficiency that they've overlooked, you should be able to exploit it. And that's what happened here is is they, they got caught with their pants down. Retail took advantage of it. And the way they responded was changing the rules mid game. You know, yeah. stopping the, the <clears throat> ability to buy shares of GameStop, which I can't do that. I can't say my position's underwater. Let's just, let's just, I'm just going to call up the, the New York Stock Exchange <clears throat> and tell them to halt trading because my position's underwater. Like, I don't get to do that. They shouldn't get to do that. Right. And that was that, that's, one, of the, one of the most interesting points was, and this was very late in the testimony, and it was the representative from Guam, if you can yeah. imagine... <laughs> right. And um, what they were talking about was uh, Robin Hood had basically a capital call that so Robin Hood mm-hmm. had uh, brokered all these all these positions It went it to the clearinghouse. The stock is very volatile and it's moving around. And all of a sudden it's like, OK, Robin Hood, you need to come up with three billion dollars. And Robin Hood was like the deer in the headlights. And it's like, I can't raise $3 billion by market open. This is at like five o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So they cooked up this idea <laughs> to allow people to sell, but not buy. Because buying created the, um, the capital crunch that they had. Selling created capital. Mm-hmm. So um, they were able to bridge through this because they didn't allow people to buy the stock. It had an ancillary effect of if you're not buying, you're not driving the price up, which is protecting the hedge funds, right? So it, yeah. was, it was like this perfect storm, and they were very good. Everybody was very good about sort of keeping this story straight, right? That, oh, we had this capital crunch, and we had to cover it somehow. So we just prevented buying, but we allowed liquidity. If you wanted to sell the stock, that was okay. Right. And we would never want to get our people in the position where they couldn't sell the stock. That would be terrible, you know, right? <laughs> and it was very consistent across the thing. And this guy from Guam comes on and he goes, so you had a capital call. Yes, we did. And you raised $4 billion. Yes, we did. But that was over a few days. Yes, we did. He said, but 
what you actually did was you met your capital call on the backs of the people that are using your platform that you, you basically used the people that were on your platform and took money from them by allowing them to sell and build up this capital reserve and they weren't buying. So you're building up capital. You basically used them to bridge through this crisis that you had. And he never said yes or no, but it was so insightful. And it was like, you really get it. You know, yes, put him on this. I like that guy on the committee. Right. Yeah. But it was so interesting because you had to listen to the stupid thing for it, freaking four hours before you. Uh, I think the whole thing was like eight you got to hours long. Like yeah. yeah, yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it it, it actually like made me. It made me feel much better about uh, Congress, which is kind of <laughs> remarkable, right? Because you had Maxine Waters, who was the chairperson and clearly knows what she's doing, but. Yeah, parliamentary wise and running this thing and the political points that she wanted to make, but clearly is not somebody that you want running the finance committee from, from a, uh, a getting things getting done. It, yeah. Right. But both Republicans and Democrats, I was very, very impressed. I, I did a little Facebook post on this and you can click over and see that, but uh, it was really good. We've got to take a break. And we'll come back. This is Allie and Sarah with their friend James Ball. Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Again, that's 503-558-6349 or proliftdoors.com slash Portland. Welcome back. Sunday morning, Abramson, Allie and Pacero with James Ball. Uh, Jimmy is on sabbatical somewhere still. I wonder if he has power. Does he have power? He does. I think he does. He was talking with us. Texting, so uh, we're talking about GameStop and Robinhood and what's been going on there. It's it was really really fascinating, and I I said that I really was heartened by the Republicans and the Democrats, and the Democrats saying, "Look, my constituents, I want them involved in the market. I don't want you guys screwing them, basically." And James, you were talking about Robinhood should have seen this coming. Yeah, um, this. So the Rob, the GameStop thing had been building on Reddit for a couple months leading up to this. And I happened to be watching that particular message board. And so like I saw it coming back from like 14 or $19. Well, you actually um, took the position, didn't you? I did. Yeah. I ended up writing it all the way back down. So I, I made a little bit of money, but not nearly as much as I could have if I had sold at the top. But um, <clears throat> diamond handed too long is what I did. Anyway. Right. Um, so yeah, got it. Got in. I think Robinhood should have seen this happening. Like as soon as you see this, this you know over leveraged, you know just kind of oddball stock going up at you know a hundred percent a day for three or four days in a row, you start looking into it and you start seeing if this is gonna like. I I don't know why they didn't see it a week or a week and a half out that 
this is going to cause capital problems and why can't what we should start looking at additional investment? Because like you said, they got a, a several billion dollar injection of capital from Citadel of all places um, a couple a couple days after they right. had uh, stopped stopped allowing trading on GameStop. So the money was out there. They could, they had the ability to raise that capital in a short amount of time. They just couldn't do it in three hours. It took three days. So right. why don't you start three days earlier? Why? How did they not see this this coming? So this is where if you watch the video of the the people talking, um, this is like they just didn't didn't acknowledge that this was happening. It was it was sort of it's never happened before. We're the masters of the universe. Um, the masters of the universe can't be faked out by a bunch of, you know, deplorables. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. And they kind of admit that it, when you watch this whole thing, they, they basically admit that they basically admit, look, we didn't take it seriously. Mm. We didn't, we weren't monitoring the message boards. We, that's, I mean, it's not even that it's well, math. But, like that's the thing. They, but they didn't. <laughs> they didn't take it seriously. This, this is what Reddit. This is what Reddit figured out is that a short squeeze is math. It has right. nothing to do with fundamentals. It has nothing to do with the message boards. It's math. When you have a stock that is shorted to one hundred and forty percent of the float, and people start buying it, and it starts going up, it it mm -hmm. doesn't stop. Like that. It that is that's what mm -hmm. happens. So let's talk about that for a second because that was a subject, and this is where. Um, I think some interesting things could happen regulatory wise. Mm -hmm. So when you short a stock, I borrow it from you and I sell it to someone else. That's the, that's the short position. I owe you the stock back at some point in time. I have to provide that stock back to you at yeah. some point in time. Um, the theory is you should never be able to have more than a hundred percent of the stock. So if I have, 100 million shares outstanding, I should never have a short position of more than 100 million shares. Um, but it happens all the time. Well, and, so and it's of. illegal. Um, so two points here. One is you can have more than 100% of the float because when you have a situation like that, say I own a stock, you borrow it from me and sell it to a third party. I still report that I own that stock and so does the person you sold it to. So there's one share of stock here, but only but two people have, are claiming to own it. Right. So you can get these weird things where you have a more than 100% ownership right. or more than 100%. But, but, I, yeah. but I should have 100 million shares of real stock and 100 million shares in a short position. Yeah. What happens is the person that bought it then loans yeah. it again, right? And, and there's no way of tracing it back. And... What this has exposed is a massive hole in our, uh, our stock system where stocks used to have certificate mm -hmm. numbers and there was a unique number for each share of stock. And then the certificate numbers became for uh, blocks of 100 shares. And now it's like there is no there's no auditability anymore of how many shares of stock. Yeah. And my, the, the, the perfect confluence of this is my familiarity with blockchain, which is what Bitcoin is built on, 
would lead me to believe that if you converted over to a system that was based on a blockchain, you could actually ensure because every single share has a unique identifier that's in the blockchain, right? Yeah. You could say which, which share was shorted and who shorted it and exactly. who sold it to them. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's, that's it. End of, end of game. And the, the thing that's amazing to me is that another thing that Wall Street has just completely pooed-pooed and all of the regulators, oh my God, that stupid Bitcoin thing, <laughs> that fallacious money thing, that you know, worthless. And I have been intrigued with this for years and years and years because the underlying technology of blockchain, in fact, when I first heard about it, I said, stock market, every stock, because every share has a unique identifier it doesn't have a lot of overhead to do it. Um, it would be remarkable if the thing that, that basically saves our modern uh, trading systems is blockchain when it's all said and done. Another thing, the thing that they, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say another, another, the way that this system works that allows some of these sort of naked shorting or over 100% is that the, the clearing houses have a, have a couple days to settle these things. And right. so if I want to short a stock at the price right now, I can do that. And I short it through my clearing house. And then the clearing house has like two days, a week to go find that yeah. share. And so they, they, they create, they short a synthetic share and then they're required over a period of time to go out and find the actual real share to short. Um, so the actual, the SEC has a list called the failure to deliver list. And that is when clearinghouses are unable to find a share because they've all been shorted. And it's just these, these shorted synthetic shares. And, it, and if a company or a ticker is on that list for more than a couple of days, it, it indicates that there's a real problem, that these, that these um, synthetic shares have been overshorted. And I think at one point, GameStop was on that list for a month and it had like something like a million shares failed to deliver, which, so I mean, yeah, you're right. Some, a blockchain system would prevent that, but it also might hurt with settlement times because if you can't find a share, if there's no share available, you're not able to short it, which I mean, is probably not a bad thing, but um, the, I think that one of the reasons they put this in place was so that you can short it, you, you don't have to wait for things to settle before you, sh right. before you short them. Well, you can, you can do and, it immediately. We've got to take a break and we'll come back. We'll continue talking <laughs> about this. This is <laughs> Alan Alley and James Ball for Alley and Passero. The Portland spirit is headed to the river. Hop on board today for great views of the Portland skyline and historic Milwaukee waterfront. See our local landmarks and bridges from a unique vantage point on the river. Grab a cocktail on our outer deck while enjoying some of our delicious local cuisine. Fun for the whole family with options including lunch, brunch, dinner, and the famous Heart of Portland cruise. Tickets can be purchased at portlandspirit.com. Welcome back to Alien Pacero with a friend James Ball. We've been talking about blockchains and Wall Street and all kinds of things. And one of the things that underlies all this is if you're going to be an investor, and you're going to understand how all of this works, you should really have a pretty good grounding in math. <laughs> yeah. 
Which brings us full circle to the next subject. <laughs> um, <laughs> there was a document. I should pull up the document. Um, there was a document that came out. I'll, I'll frame the discussion. James, maybe you can pull it up while we're talking. Um, there was a document that came out that I think is from Oregon, if I recall. It's like a, a continuing education class that teachers would take about different subjects that they, that they need to uh, brush up on. And this was one about uh, systemic racism, uh, white racism, white superiority in teaching math. Mm -hmm. And it initially struck me as this is, this, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. And you read it, and there are some things that are, I, I think, uh, ridiculous. Um, I have to say that after you get past the headlines, there's actually some good things in it, too. There's some things about being sensitive to people's cultures when you're talking about things, uh, how that applies to different math problems that might be presented, story problems that might be presented, uh, people's life experiences aren't all the same. And if you present a story problem in one way, it could affect their ability or inability to solve that problem. And, and uh, all good stuff. And I think it, it's, it was, that's very, very useful. But there were things like um, focusing on getting the right answer is, uh, is something that it, it creates a, a situation of right versus wrong and wrong be in you're wrong and I'm right and therefore you're oppressed or something along those lines. And you know, math is pretty. I'm. It's pretty cut and dry. Mm -hmm. um, another one was don't show your work because the work that you show in a math problem is a crutch for the teacher. And I had an example of this when I was in engineering school. I took an exam. Um, it was in engineering, some of your exams will be literally one mm -hmm. problem. That's it. And I made a bad assumption at the beginning of the problem, showed all of my work and how I solved this problem, came up with an answer. And the answer that I got was an answer that was plausible because in engineering, one of the things you do is you get an answer and you look back and you go, oh, that, that doesn't make any sense. There's no way that could be it. But my answer was plausible. I really understood the material, turned in my test, came back, I got a B because um, I made a bad assumption right at the very beginning and got the wrong answer. And my instructor said, look, you clearly understand this. You clearly understand the material, but I can't give you an A because the airplane crashed or, <laughs> or the, the tower fell down. You know, your result was the wrong result. And math is that way. And so instilling in kids at an early age that getting the right answer is not something you have to worry about in math, I think is, is horrible. It's so just I, absolutely horrible. I haven't read the entire, entire document. I've got it here, but it's 82 pages long. So I haven't read the whole thing, but I have read some of the, the articles on it or some of the discussion. And um <clears throat> Kind of to your point where the headline doesn't quite match the material. Mm -hmm. um, the one of the things that they're saying is not so much that it's not the right answer. I mean, two plus two is four, but there are multiple ways to get to that answer. And so, teaching a specific 
way. I mean, there's one of the examples that I heard from, well, on Reddit of all places, uh, was, uh, you know, at like complex addition, you know, you, the way we, the way I was taught to add two numbers is, you know, you add the ones column, you put down the, the, the singles digit, you carry the, the remainder yeah. and then you add the next column and you move right to left. And that's, you know, one way to get the right answer. You could also do the, you know, common core looks at like blocks and, you know, it's a different way to get the right answer. And so what they were, what the commenter was saying is, you know, we, we teach a, we don't teach, there are multiple ways to get the right answer. We teach, this is the method you need to follow the method and people learn in different ways. And I can appreciate that, you know, if you get to the correct answer using a different method than the one was taught, you know, you should still get credit for that. I don't know how that impacts race though. And that's one thing I never really could figure out unless you were just your, your initial assumption is that different races are inherently different that, you know, black people are different from white people and need to learn differently. And if you teach something in a way that benefits white people, you are inherently being racist against black people. And I don't know that I buy that, you know, people are different and, you know, maybe there are some cultural aspects here of the way that people learn, but I I don't see it as being racist. I I don't, I don't know how another, another thing I, that I noticed from here is, um, they are trying to push back thing like mathematical problems that promote capitalism, uh, imperialism and racism. And what really struck me is the fact that they put all three of those three things together. Right. You know, so you work, you work backwards, racism, obviously bad racism, right. is bad. You should not treat people differently based on the color of their skin. Imperialism, imperialism, also bad. You know, it, it's, it's, maybe not objectifying people to the state of, of racism or slavery, but you know, you're, you're setting up your way of life ahead of indigenous peoples. Also bad. Then capitalism. Capitalism is good. Capitalism is a way for you to work hard and to make your, um, to, to improve your station in life. Capitalism is a good thing, but they put it in with these two very bad things and try to, dismantle capitalism. And uh, I think this, this is just kind of the liberal mindset is we have gone so far down this, this path where to be racist doesn't mean that you have to think people are different. All you have to do is support a system or an institution that has historically benefited white people. And I think that's how they get, how they get on this anti-capitalism train is cap, you know, in America for sure, capitalism has benefited white people more than black people. Therefore, it's racist, which I disagree with. The system is not racist because it has historically benefited one group over another. Well, we need to fix the system so that everybody can benefit equally. The system itself yeah, is not. To your modern. point, it, it's we just were talking about GameStop, and I was ta- I was telling you that there was an African American representative, I think from Florida, that clearly would disagree with this because his whole position was I have kids that I want to learn Mm -hmm. about the stock market. I want them to invest in the stock market. I want them to be part of the upward mobility that it can provide. I want them to be educated about how to do this. And this document, you're absolutely right. I I pulled it up here. 
Um, this can result in using mathematics to uphold capitalist and imperialist ways of being and understanding the world. And it's like, oh my gosh. I want them to understand <laughs> I capitalism. So. I hope so. Yeah. Right? Uh, Unless you want. I, but, adding, but putting those things together is just the, how the, the left has totally gone off the rails here. And I don't know how they, um, yeah, identified, challenged the way, and challenged the ways that math is used to uphold capitalist, imperialist, and racist views. Yep. Wow. And. Yep. They are anti-capitalist and this is they're not even hiding it anymore this is a document that is uh from the let me look back here yeah dismantling racism in mathematics instruction um yeah california mathematics project it it looks like it's a california document Hmm. but extraordinary and we've got to take a break we're going to come back this is alien pacero with james ball Welcome back to Ali and Pacero with my friend James Ball. We're talking about capitalism, math, white supremacy, how all those things go together. I, I never would have thought that we'd get there. But one of the things that I distinctly remember was I, I was uh, giving a talk to a group of inner city kids in North oh, Portland. So you're not supposed to say and it was inner city. That's a, don't you remember from inner cities are a bad word. You're not supposed to use oh. that. <laughs> what 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 am I supposed to use? I I don't know. I forget. I'm sorry, kid. I sorry. I didn't mean to. Well, interrupt. kids just... that live near the center of okay. Portland. Okay. <laughs> um, and it was a summer camp where they came in and they learned about entrepreneurship and they actually went through a, a day um, where they wrote a business plan divide created a business, wrote a business plan, and then presented that business plan. I was one of the judges. Uh, They do an amazing job. These are kids that have never, ever, ever had any remote sense, the thought of starting a business. And they came up with great little businesses, great business plans. I I was blown away. I did it for several years. And I was talking to the kids afterwards, and there's some of their teachers are there from the community that came in. And the kids wanted to know, how did I become successful? You know, what did I do? And I told them, well, I went to school and I went to engineering school and I worked as a busboy and my mom had a job and she helped me pay for school. And it's like, you can all do that. All you guys can do it. There's enough out there for you to do. And I could tell that they were really, really interested. And one of them said, he raised his hand and he goes, Mr. Alley, When you made money, did you buy something cool? <laughs> and, <laughs> and I talked to him and I, I said, you know, I thought about it. This is what's going through my head. And all the teachers are looking at me. And I said, am I going to tell them the truth or am I going to give them some? And I said, I'm just going to tell them the truth. And I said, yeah, I bought a Ferrari. <laughs> and he was like, what? I said, yeah, I bought a Ferrari. I said, my granddad was Italian. And when I was about your age, I read about Ferraris. And I thought, how could I ever get to the point in my life where I could buy this car? And if I could, how proud would my granddad be? A guy that came from Italy when he was 13 years old and came to the United States with nothing, that his grandson was able to buy a Ferrari. And I said, so for me, 
buying that Ferrari was a, a way of signifying that I had achieved something that I never thought I could achieve in my whole life. Mm-hmm. And I said, for you guys, maybe it's buying a Ferrari, maybe it's buying a car, maybe it's buying a house, maybe it's paying for your little brother to go to school or, you know, but have an aspiration, set a goal. And I'm telling you, when I was 13 years old, the thought of buying a Ferrari was literally beyond any way that I could even conceive of to attain that goal. There was no way from where I was at that point in time that I could buy a friend. Impossible, mm-hmm. right? But it was a dream and it was a goal that I had. It wasn't like I, I, it was something every day. It was just kind of in the back of my mind. And you could just see those kids just kind of lighting up, you know, and they, you could see their little eyes going, yeah, yeah, I got, I got something. I, yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Well, that's, that's what capitalism allows you to do. Yeah right? That aspiration, that dream, that self-destiny. And to, to, to make that a bad thing and to suck that yeah. out of them, I, I can't even so, imagine it. You said we had a question. Yeah, there's a comment on here. I disagree that capitalism benefits white people more than black people. Cap, true capitalism is completely neutral. Look at the way that every immigrant in the United States has a possibility of making it. Any, uh, Yeah, so... Yeah, absolutely agree, but you have to look at this from a from a liberal perspective because that's who wrote this this thing. Um, the way liberals look at capitalism is they don't look at what it is and what it's capable of, like Alan and I do, and like most conservatives do. What they look at it as is they look they look at it historically, and they say that most of your CEOs are white. You know, your your entrepreneur billionaires are all white men, and so rather than saying this is a tool that anybody can use. What they do is they look at it in hindsight and say that it has historically benefited um, white people more than black people. They do the same thing with the nuclear family. And this is like, this is, this is a, a huge problem. They, they say that, you know, having a mother and a father in the home is something that has benefited white people. And, and Black Lives Matter got in trouble for this at one point because they actually had it on their website that they wanted to dismantle the nuclear family. Um, they ended up taking that down at one point. But that is another system that has benefited white people more than black people. I mean, it's just statistically, um, there are more broken families in the black community than there are in the white community. And this is a system that is beneficial for anyone, but it's something that white families tend to stick together more than black families do. And that just statistically speaking. I think to your point, this is, it's, it's valid that the Democrats the liberals, I won't say, yeah. I don't know who, but whoever wrote this document right. thinks capitalism mm-hmm. is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And I think capitalism is the greatest tool we have for upward mobility of, of new mm-hmm. Americans. And I think you're going to see what you're actually seeing is more and more first generation Americans are realizing this and Donald Trump actually did better in 2020 with first-generation Americans, minorities, and, and black than uh, he did in 2016. Yeah. And I, I actually think this is the future of the Republican yeah. Party. It's not big tech. It's not Hollywood. It's not big business. It's not Wall Street. It's actually first-generation, second-generation Americans aspirational people that want to move up that economic ladder 
and they're going to use capitalism to do yeah, it. And, and that's what I think is important is, as we as Republicans, you use the tool to benefit more people, not take away the tool that, benef- that has historically benefited one group over the other. Um, Jennifer Neiman says she lost audio, but I can hear you just fine. So I don't Okay, we'll press you know, on. Um, but that, that's it. And the same thing with the nuclear family. Like you, you don't, you don't, and this is, this is where equality or equity kind of goes in the wrong direction is I want everyone to succeed and I want everyone to use the best tools available to succeed. And capitalism is one of those tools that people can use to succeed yeah. and get better in life. And the, the liberals see or some liberals see capitalism as a way to get for some people to get ahead. And so what they try to do is chop that down, take away the system that allows people to get ahead. And so everybody's equal, but everybody's kind of lower middle class and reliant on the government. And I don't, I don't agree with that. It's not a world that I want to be part of. I don't either. I think we, we can continue this conversation after the break. This is Ali and Sarah with James Ball. Welcome back to Ali and Pacero with my friend James Ball. We've covered a lot of ground today. I want to talk about COVID and sort of the, the performance of our uh, wonderful state um, in, um, in how we've rolled out our uh, COVID vaccines here. There was an article in the Oregonian this week where Oregon ranked basically last in vaccinating people age 65 and over, age 75 and over. Um, we were about a third of what Indiana was. Indiana was, was number one <clears throat> on that list. And Oregon just has not, uh, not prioritized uh, elderly people, people at risk, people with underlying conditions. We prioritized uh, school teachers, frankly. And So what I did was I I took the list from the Oregonian of uh, states from top to bottom, those that did the best, those that did the worst. And I had a couple of interesting things to sort of correlate to of did they vote for Donald Trump or did they vote for Joe Biden? And another one was the, the percent of their state and city employees that were represented by a union. And <clears throat> I'm not going to say that correlation is causation because uh, I don't believe that, but it's interesting to note that of the 20 best states, 17 of them voted for Trump. They're red states. Of the 20 best states, uh, 17 of them uh, were above average in union representation of state and city employees. I think- And when you have that, when you have the government with the vaccine and the government's distributing the vaccine and you have these government union employees and the teachers lobby for it and the teachers are the ones that spend $50 million a year, um, they get vaccinated. I I think so. I know know Oregon better than I know the other states. So I can't say this, this applies across the board, but in Oregon, legislators on the Democratic side of the aisle Typically, like you said, our union people, they are, um, work for state-funded nonprofits. They're, those are the types of people that, that get elected on the Democratic side because 
that's part of their job is to influence government. On the conservative side, on the Republican side, they're business owners because you don't have this, you know, state infrastructure that helps you get elected. And so the only way you can live is to uh, own a business and have some supplemental income on the side. So I think if I don't, if that, if that holds true with other states, which I imagine it probably does, what you have when Republicans are in control is a whole bunch of business leaders who know how to manage, who know how to delegate, who know how to run these systems and deal with, with uh, interesting problems and run the ones run by Democrats. You've got a whole bunch of, of bureaucrats who know the ins and outs of uh, bureaucracy and the government and how to make the government function, but have never run a business, have never dealt with an unexpected problem before. And so it, just look at the way Kate Brown is doing this. I and mean, she, she understands, and I'll give her credit for trying to reopen schools uh, because that is absolutely important. Getting kids back in schools is absolutely important for a myriad reasons, but she didn't coordinate with anyone. She's just like, oh, we're going to vaccinate teachers but didn't talk to the union to make sure that they were actually willing to go back to work. You know, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's just any, any Republican leader or any leader who has run a business or who understands, um, understands things, uh, like how, how systems work would have made sure before they started vaccinating teachers that, this was actually going to work and you were actually going to get kids back in schools. Instead, we're vaccinating teachers who are still sitting at home on Zoom teaching remotely. And so I think that's why we're so far behind. We're not. Worse yet, we have our teachers who are now vaccinated going to Walmart and the person that's checking out the teacher at Walmart, um, they don't have a vaccine yet they've been working in a heterogeneous environment with lots of different people that are potentially carrying the disease. And their kids are at home alone uh, trying to, maybe they're online, maybe they're not, who knows? It's, it's unconscionable. And, and above and beyond that, we've talked about this a lot on this show, the people that die with COVID are primarily people that are average age 78 with multiple underlying conditions. It's like, I mean, I would make the case that people died because Kate Brown did not prioritize the most at risk. And if you were in a battle, if this is a war, and if this is really a pandemic, you should treat it like a war. If, If you don't, protect the people. If you don't protect the people that are most vulnerable, you have, it's a dereliction of duty. And I I just posted, I think people can see it. I posted the chart here. The, the bars on the left were from the Oregonian. And then the stuff on the right right is me pulling data from other places. Um, And I'm, look, I'm not saying that that Trump voters did a better job or whatever. But if you look at Indiana, Utah, Alaska, Ohio, South Dakota, Virginia, if you look at those states, they're, they're managed more like somebody would manage something for efficiency. We talked about this earlier, that government is not managed to be efficient. Um, and they've delivered, they've delivered the shots to the people that needed them most. And 
um, it, 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 it's unconscionable what we've done. And I've actually had some Democratic friends now <clears throat> say, hmm, maybe, maybe we're not exactly hitting the ball out of the park on this one. Maybe we, we didn't exactly do it. Um, somebody mentioned Hawaii. I think Hawaii has, uh, let's look back at the chart here. Um, Hawaii might have been one that isn't reporting, if I recall. Yeah, and there's, there were only 30 states that reported, 20 states don't report, and the 20 states that don't report, again, are primarily... Um, anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, you, you know, you could, and I, I think I've said this before, like any, anybody can, I don't like criticizing people on the, the order in which we are, are vaccinating people. I mean, it, I think you can look at it this way as of like, you know, the most vulnerable do need to be vaccinated first. And I think that that is valid. I also think it's valid to say that, um, that healthcare workers should have been vaccinated first because there are yeah. other externalities involved in vaccinating healthcare workers. Um, people who, you know, you could also make the argument that people who are, who see a lot of people, you know, grocery store workers, those folks would be, it would be beneficial to vaccinate them because they, they would be, if one of them does catch it, they could potentially be a super spreader. Um, and, you know, you could make a lot of different um, arguments for which order in which to, to vaccinate people. I, I think you're right, Alan, that um, going from highest age to lowest is a, is a good and equitable way to do this. But you could, wow. you could make different arguments for, for different orders. James, two weeks ago, yeah, I yeah. think it was two weeks ago, if we would have prioritized it, we could have, as of two weeks ago, all of the doctors right. and nurses, no matter what they're doing, 100% of doctors and nurses, everybody in congregate living, everybody yep. in foster living, everybody that works in congregate living, everybody that works in foster living, and everybody that is 75 and older, 100% done with the vaccines that we had if we would have prioritized them. And the fact that she didn't do it is beyond my imagination. In fact, politically, she doesn't know how to do it. She doesn't know how to do it. She's been an elected official since, since she was 27 James, years old. <laughs> even politically, if I'm just acting completely in my political self-interest, to be able to stand up and say, we are the first state to vaccinate 100% of our doctors and nurses, 100% in Congress, 100%, 100% of people 75 and over. We did it before anybody else did. That is this, the best political <laughs> statement you could make. But I don't think, I think this is more of a correlation thing. I think, you, like I said, your, your Democrat leaders tend to be bureaucrats and bureaucrats are not great at managing new situations. They're good at managing old situations, old problems that have been around for, for decades. And I, I don't think that, I don't think she's capable. I don't think she's capable of making these decisions because she's never had to deal with a new problem in her life. She's been an elected official. She's been running the government since she was in her twenties. Yeah. I think I, I don't, I don't think it has, I don't think it has anything to do with her being a Democrat other than I think it has to do with her being a, a bureaucratic politician. Well, and this is what we have. And we've got a bunch of people that are now responsible for managing large, complex operations. This is a large, complex operation, not just doing 
the same thing you did last year with 15% more budget. It's a large, complex operation. And they are completely unable to do it. They are completely untrained to do it. And they can't even do the politically expedient thing. It's kind of beyond my imagination. They're, They're not, yeah, they're not able to. Because they don't have the experience or the knowledge to do something. So like on that, that cheery <laughs> note, we will we'll conclude our, this version of Ali and Pacero with James Ball. Tune in next week. We'll be back with some more insights that I don't think that you get uh, many other places. James, thanks so much. Thanks, and talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. This has been Ali and Pacero with your hosts, Alan Ali and Jim Pacero. The podcast is produced by James Ball. Be sure to follow us on Facebook. And if you'd like to contact the show, you can send an email to alan at alanalley.com.